Welcome to Aspen Insight. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenen. Today, we're talking about something impacting the entire country. It's possible you have a loved one affected by it, and you've certainly heard it mentioned in the news lately. Opioids are now the biggest drug epidemic in American history. Every day, 91 Americans die from an overdose of opioids, which include prescription painkillers and heroin. Fatalities due to opioid overdoses have skyrocketed, and it's now the leading cause of death for adults under 50. The Trump administration classified the opioid crisis as a public health emergency. No matter their political affiliation, policymakers all agree that this issue needs immediate action. And experts, including those here at the Aspen Institute, are trying to find solutions. But in order to fix the problem, we have to first understand how we got here. So I spoke with someone who knows better than anyone just how dire the situation has become. Hello. Hi, is this Jesse? Hi, this is her. Is this Zach? This is Zach, yeah, with the Aspen Institute. (laughs) Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. Thanks so much for talking. Yeah. Jesse West is a single mother living in Utah. She squeezed in a phone call with me while her two-year-old son Jax was taking his afternoon nap. So... It's mommy time right now, and it's probably the best time of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Jessie is energetic and warm during our talk. She's taking a break from a busy day filled with the unique challenges that accompany being a single mother. But Jessie faces one challenge that's so much more than what most mothers face, and it's something she's grappled with for a long time. I was putting myself in places that I shouldn't be, but I got stuck. I Honestly, I got stuck there for a good five, six, seven years. Jessie struggled with a heroin addiction in the years leading up to her pregnancy. It was a really difficult period in her life. She was alienated from her family, was homeless at times, and on multiple occasions faced criminal charges. I would overdose and I would get charges because I would get ambulance to the hospital and wake up and you know, I'd be in my system or whatever and I would get charges. Eventually, she was confronted with an ultimatum. Basically, it was either, you know, complete drug courts or go to prison. I called Jessie to talk about her experience because she has personally dealt with this problem that is unfortunately becoming more and more common in the U.S. In 2015, 50,000 people died of drug overdoses and 63% were opioid-related. About as many Americans are expected to die this year from overdoses than died in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan combined. So how did we get to this point? This is a drug crisis that emerged out of the healthcare system. Nora Volkoff is the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She spoke at the Institute's Spotlight Health Conference this summer. We physicians, with our best intentions to treat patients suffering from pain, became too complacent on the way that we treated them as it relates to the use of opioid medications. She explains how, beginning in the 1990s, pharmaceutical companies made available opioid-based medications to treat pain. And physicians prescribed them widely, but what they didn't fully understand is that those medications were also incredibly addictive. When those patients could no longer access their prescription drugs, they turned to cheaper and more dangerous alternatives. There was a major entry of pure heroin coming from Mexico Mm -hmm. that was seeding the whole country and taking cover very nicely. It's like basically the soil was ready on people that had become addicted to prescription opioids. 
Within a relatively short period of time, addiction to these substances swept the country and escalated, which led to even more powerful and dangerous drugs. Fentanyl, a synthetic drug 100 times more potent than morphine, is one that is now being used more frequently. It can be lethal in doses as small as one quarter of a milligram. So this is the backdrop of this crisis. Tens of thousands of Americans have become severely addicted to opioids, and one of the most serious side effects is the impact on the families and children of those with an addiction. Roxanne White is the Mortgage Innovator-in-Residence with the Ascend program here at the Institute, and she is the former head of Nurse Family Partnership. I spoke with her about Nurse Family Partnership, which matches nurses into the homes of mothers who need extra support leading up to and immediately following the birth of their child, many of whom struggle with addiction. We work with moms who are concerned about their parenting. It's all voluntary. We go into their homes and we work with moms and dads um, from before the baby is born until the baby is two and a half years old. Jessie found the support that she needed in this difficult time through this program. Her son's father died of a drug overdose, and she was continuing to battle her own addiction when her son was born. And for her, his birth changed everything. It wasn't just about me anymore. It was about me and Jax. But Jessie was in an extremely vulnerable situation, fighting to retain her sobriety with a new baby. Roxanne says that this is a common situation for mothers in their program. She explains that pregnant mothers who are addicted face serious health concerns and tough living circumstances. We're seeing babies being born in hospitals around America that are not unlike what happened um, when I first started working, which was when we had the crack epidemic with babies being born drug addicted and needing to withdraw. We've also worked with moms that because of their addiction have been jailed and are delivering a baby while they are incarcerated. The reason this program works is because a nurse is right there in the home with the family. They can see what's going on and can step in to help. This program was a lifesaver for Jesse and so many other parents who needed it. While Nurse Family Partnership is working at the family level to combat this issue, another group at the Aspen Institute is looking at the bigger picture. Well, the Aspen Health Strategy Group is a group of 25 leaders who come out of healthcare, the media, economics, academia, to focus on one idea a year in healthcare. I spoke on the phone with Kathleen Sibelius. She's a former U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services and the co-chair of the Aspen Health Strategy Group. Each year, the group tackles one of the biggest challenges in healthcare for the nation. And this year, that was the opioid epidemic. Our goal is to develop some big ideas that uh, may not be brand new, but we felt were probably the most significant ways to move the needle forward. Secretary Sibelius talks me through all five recommendations. The first is that the government needs to guarantee access to treatment for addiction. This is a public health crisis, and it's people are curable, but they need treatment. So we recommend strongly that the Medicaid expansion, which covers opioid treatment, be continued. Second, physicians need to prescribe fewer opioid-based painkillers and for a shorter duration. Any of the studies that look at this area recognize that the United States is a significant outlier in the world in the number of opioid prescriptions written and the duration of those 
prescriptions. Third is that lawmakers and the public need to break the stigma surrounding addiction and treat it as a public health problem, not as a crime. Um, Move away from the incarceration model that has failed miserably, um, that we stop labeling this as a moral failure and recognize it's a disease. The fourth is that we need to work harder to reduce overdose deaths. Sibelius told me that there are proven antidotes that can reverse an opioid overdose, and they should be made available more widely to first responders. And the final recommendation the group is making is that more research needs to be done about the long-term effects of opioids and to find alternatives for treating long-term pain. Coming up with some reasonable alternatives have been very slow, and it's really time to take this seriously as a public health crisis and put together the knowledge and science base to back it up. The group has now shared these ideas with the White House, with key members of Congress, and published them publicly in the hope that they can inform how this issue is handled going forward. I asked Sibelius whether or not she's hopeful about our country's ability to enact these changes. Well, I absolutely believe we have the tools necessary. Do we have the political will? I'm not sure. For Jesse, her own will has remained strong in her commitment to stay drug-free. But the risk of going back, it's always there. It's so easy to relapse and give up your sobriety. It's a moment-to-moment thing for me. Every footstep I take, I have to look left, right, up, down, behind me. You know, just to make sure that I'm going in a correct direction and not back to where I was. Jessie is proud of where she is now and recognizes that she's one of the lucky ones. A lot of people don't get to where where I'm at today. A lot of people, you know, end up taking their lives or end up doing a drug, they not not even knowing that that they're not going to wake up from it. If we can take steps now as a country, hopefully we can get to a point where fewer Americans die this way and we have more success stories like Jessie's to tell. You can learn more about the opioid epidemic and watch the full conversations from Spotlight Health, as well as learn more about the Aspen Health Strategy Group and the Ascend program on our website at aspeninstitute.org insight. We'll be right back. If you're curious about the work we do here at the Aspen Institute and want to learn more, check out our website. There, you'll be able to watch discussions we host, read pieces from our experts, see reports from our policy programs, and find out about upcoming events. You can find all of this and more at aspeninstitute.org. Now back to today's episode of Aspen Insight. Most of us probably harbor preconceived notions about refugees Maybe it's a misunderstanding about what drove them from home, or perhaps it's a lack of understanding about the lives they led before crises upended them. But one of the worst humanitarian challenges of our time is also replete with opportunities. Many refugees are bringing their talent, drive, and imagination with them, including the man in our next piece. Robert Hakiza fled violence in the DRC, or Democratic Republic of Congo. I met up with him during his first visit ever to the United States, 
As one of our new Voices fellows, he was in Colorado for the Aspen Institute's Spotlight Health Conference. Can you tell me a little bit about your story of um, of leaving the Democratic Republic of Congo? My story is very long, but I'm doing. I'm going to try. I'm. I'll try to make it a little bit short. Robert was raised in Eastern Congo. So I was born myself in a in a place called Bukavu, that is in South Kivu, and uh, that is where I grew up. He was the fifth child and second boy in a family of 12. His father, a mechanic, encouraged him to go to school. And uh, he liked education so much and uh, he worked very hard to take us to school and especially myself because I can say I was the only, only one was, uh, I think, working very hard with my, my education and stuff. So I managed to complete uh, primary, secondary school and then uh, I joined university. Robert eventually graduated with a degree in agriculture from the Catholic University of Bukavu in 2007, the first in his family to earn a college degree. During his studies, there was a war happening. That is the period where in, in, in my country, and especially in uh, South Kivu and North Kivu, there was a lot of conflict, you know, since 1996 up to now. The 20-year-old conflict in eastern Congo can feel like an alphabet soup of armed groups scrambling for land and minerals. Today we're going to Now to the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the most war-ravaged regions in the world. Armed militias stalk the lush forests. This is not the way they want to live. This is not the way they want to raise a family. They are um, overwhelmed, they're heartbroken, and they're suffering. And they're suffering because their children are... These reports from NPR and CNN are from 2012, 2014, and October of this year, when U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley visited a camp for Congolese people. 3.8 million people have fled their homes. With a college diploma in hand, Robert Hakiza was ready to make a life for himself. But the country's instability put a stop to that. As any young person, I had plans and dreams and, you know, I wanted to get a nice job, get myself a beautiful wife, make my family and so on. But uh, all this was not possible because uh, we had to, 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 to leave, you know, we were forced to leave. He and some of his family members traveled to Kampala, Uganda. There, he was surprised to find nearly 40,000 refugees. Many lived in a refugee settlement, but Robert's family rented a small house in the city. Uganda is uh, one of the countries that uh, has, you know, uh, a good uh, refugee policy, where refugees are not just put in the camp and the closed camp, but. Uh, they are allowed to, to, to move wherever they want. Uh, there is that freedom of movement. More than one million refugees live in Uganda, many from East Congo, but also South Sudan. 
Al Jazeera reports the country's refugee policy is hailed as progressive because refugees are given small plots of land to build homes and grow crops. And as Robert mentioned, they can move freely within the country. Still, Robert's family struggled. When their money ran out, they couldn't buy food and were forced to move to a one-bedroom apartment where he lived with seven of his family members. His wasn't the only family dealing with hardship. Many of the refugees were women and children. There was a lot of suffering. We had a number of young people who didn't go to school, a number of young people who didn't get anything, you know, no jobs and nothing. And you know, in this situation where you have this big number of young people idle, you know, they start getting involved in uh, negative activities like uh, drugs and uh, crimes. So we realized that uh, it was really a lot of suffering and we had to do something. That's when he helped found the Young African Refugees for Integral Development, or YARID. I didn't want to be in the situation whereby I could just sit down, you know, and wait for some people to come and support or sit down and start crying or life is difficult. I and my colleagues looked at the opportunities that were around. And one of them was the opportunity of the policy, the refugee policy in Uganda. They started mobilizing people, especially the youth. First, they created a space where people could come together and share their experiences. I believe, uh, and then we believe that uh, if people come together and discuss, they can, they can get solutions sometimes. They also created organized sports, where hundreds of young people from myriad nationalities came together to play. Every day, morning and evening, we could go to the pitch playing football, and after, we could sit down and start discussing. So the discussions were, you know, just trying to identify the major problems that people were facing and see where we can get support and how we can come about, we can solve them. Many refugees were from French-speaking countries, so the language barrier was a problem. In Uganda, the official languages are English and Swahili. Those who wanted to start doing small businesses around, they need to know the language. To go to the market, you need to know the language, to communicate with other people, and especially the, lo- the local people, you need to know the language. It was really a very a major challenge. There was just one language program in Kampala, Robert says, in an area where hundreds of new refugees were arriving daily. So Robert and his colleagues sought out volunteers and started a language program in a church. It was more popular than they anticipated. Even the chairs we had in the church were not enough. Some of the people could come and uh, join classes by standing because we did not have enough chairs. Others were waiting outside. They held more and more classes to satisfy the need, prioritizing teaching women because they were often the head of the household. Robert discovered many students were illiterate, so reading and writing classes were added. So today, the organization, I can say it has grown up. It's actually almost 10 years old. So we have now different, many programs and uh, operating at different places in Kampala. Yeah, that is a little bit uh, what I can say about my story. You know? mm-hmm. So up to now, and in my family, we, we in, in Kampala as the refugees, and uh, that's, that's, that's all. Yeah. Today, Yared is one of the best-known refugee-run organizations in Kampala. 
It's the first refugee-led effort to win the $100,000 Ockenden International Prize, which recognizes work promoting the self-reliance of refugees and displaced people. Robert Hakiza is a fellow with the Aspen New Voices program. Through the fellowship, experts like Hakiza and others from developing countries learn to tell their own stories so they can bring greater awareness to the work they do in public health, education, poverty alleviation, and community activism. For more, visit newvoicesfellows.aspeninstitute.org. Here's what keeps Colin O'Mara up at night. Up to one-third of U.S. species could go extinct, and American kids are addicted to their screens. O'Mara leads the National Wildlife Federation, and he's a Caddo Fellow with the Aspen Institute. He's working to protect vulnerable species, like the monarch butterfly, and get kids connected to the great outdoors. The average kid spends 50 hours a week in front of a screen, and he fears more screen time means fewer hikes, campfires, and the like. He explains how he's working to avoid this trend with his own children. I caught up with him at the Resnick Aspen Action Forum in Aspen, Colorado, where he was attending seminars and workshops designed to help him and others become more effective leaders. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What are the biggest issues on the landscape right now? It's a combination of things. So one is that we do have this massive kind of wildlife crisis that's a lot, in a lot of ways under the radar. Um, we've done a good job, I think, organizationally as the country highlighting individual species that are in trouble. Like, yes, the average like, second grader, like what's going on with the monarch? And they'll say, oh, the monarchs are in trouble. Um, we're not connecting to the bigger system. And so folks aren't connecting the... Salmon populations being down in the northwest to the moose populations maybe struggling in the northeast to the um, impacts on sea turtles and like really come sea turtles in the in the Gulf with you know maybe a um, underground north fish in the in the southwest um, and kind of seeing how it's, there's a bigger systems problem right now and and I think the the challenge is that we haven't really funded um, proactive conservation in a big way and which has led then to these issues becoming more partisan because if you don't do the proactive work that tends to be more collaborative you wind up with regulatory solutions and so a lot of times we're seeing it's kind of what, I, what, I, what a friend of mine calls kind of conflict or combat conservation where folks are fighting these things out in the courts instead of actually putting habitat on the ground but you now that the two numbers that keep me up at night are that one third that I mentioned and then also that the average American kid spending 50 hours a week in front of some kind of screen and and so where you know a lot of folks my age I grew up in upstate New York we're spending most of their time you know, outdoors in the summer, um, kids aren't doing that as much anymore. And, and if we don't have that conservation ethic that comes from that kind of unstructured outdoor play, the ability of folks to then prioritize conservation later in their lives becomes diminished pretty dramatically. And so I think for me, like getting more kids engaged and reconnecting kids with nature is absolutely essential if we're going to actually recover America's wildlife populations. How is the Wildlife Federation doing that? Do you have some initiatives that are getting kids away from their screens? Yeah. So, I mean, the the National Wildlife Federation, we run programs in more than 11,000 schools across the country. Um, We reach four or five million kids. Um, The number should be 10 or 20, uh, hopefully in the next few years. Um, we publish Ranger Rick magazine, which gives you know kind of parents tools to get their kids more engaged outdoors. And we have outdoor camps, and a lot of our state affiliates have a lot of um, programs that connect kids with nature. And so we're 
all in all, we're probably reaching, I don't know, 10 to 12 million kids a year. It's a, it's, an, it's interesting because there's a debate inside the community, um, what, whether you're trying to kind of get folks away from kind of technology or do you basically try to figure out technology actually enhance the experience and get folks more, more engaged. Um, and I'm actually a little more in the, the latter camp, that there's there's some good ways to engage kids. Um, it's not necessarily like a Pokemon Go where you're actually not looking at the surroundings. You might be walking into the river <laughs> or whatever. But things that actually add additional information and kind of provide content and then encourage the kids to actually look and see and kind of engage. Um, and so we're doing a lot of that right now. But, I, I mean, I feel like um, I, I was having a dinner with a, a friend who's a leading climate scientist um, who's a little older, and he said, he said, you know, in the 1990s, um, there was a conscious decision to not focus on kids because there wasn't time. The problem was too great, and we didn't have time to wait for the next generation. He said if we had made those investments earlier, we wouldn't be in nearly the predicament we're in right now. And so, you know, I, I mean, for me, it's as much about STEM and science and technology engineering and math education, making it part of, like, every child's experience, both in the classroom and, and outdoors, um, is the best way to judge these problems long term. So do you think there's a generation out there that – is uh, more disconnected from nature than, you know, he mentioned the 1990s. Anybody who's growing up, you know, from being born in that era, are they more disconnected from nature? Yeah, I think absolutely. And it's a combination of things. So if you look at um, kind of suburbanization and kind of, you know, folks moving further out, um, and and at the same time, more folks moving off the kind of out of, out of rural landscapes into cities and into suburbs, um, folks were less kind of connected to land. Then you layer on top of it Atari and then Nintendo and Sega and AOL and kind of the rise of technology and all the things to do in front of a screen. Um, I mean, there are more American kids that were you know, playing Duck Hunt on Nintendo in the 1990s and 1980s and 1990s than were actually duck hunting. And the challenge now is that those kids are not having kids. And so their outdoor experiences are more one more generation removed. And so if the kid wants to, if you want your child to have an outdoor experience, then some case you have to go back to the grandparents to teach them how to fish, teach them how to hike, teach them how to how to camp, especially things that require like a little additional skill or go hunting. Um, and like that's the, the scary part. And the interesting thing is the polling, I feel like his attitudes on like climate or things like that, I mean like the support for action is very, very high. But it's almost an academic connection to it. It's not because of the resource. It's because they believe the science. They, they understand the, the magnitude of the crisis. But it's not because they have the special places that they're thinking of. It's because they want to make sure they're on the right side of addressing this bigger kind of global threat. Um, and I think, frankly, we need a little more of both. How are you going to raise your children to be mindful and uh, connected to the great outdoors. Yeah, I mean, my, my kids are, are going to be outdoor kids. I mean, like if, if Alana, Alana's, you know, five weeks now, like almost, almost six, if she is fussy, the best way to calm her is to get her outside, right? And a combination of the fresh air, she can begin to kind of focus on things now. I mean, if she can see, you know, the branches off a... Uh, off some kind of conifer or, you know, being able to um, even just kind of feel like grass, you know, those kind of, those kind of sensations, she gets calm immediately in a way that any kind of electronic stimulation will never have the same impact. Um, my, my five-year-old, um, Riley, um, is outdoors all the time. And, and, you know, she's been hiking and fishing and, you know, doing all kinds of activities, camping all over the country. And, and for her, it's almost second nature where if she has her choice between – you know, watching Frozen for the 10,000th time or, you know, kind of going outdoors. She'll have to choose the outdoor activity. Um, so the other thing that keeps you up at night, you said, is one-third of all the species on the planet will be endangered when? So, yeah, so in the, in the, just in the U.S. context. So actually, let me back up. So compared to 1970, there's more than less than half as much kind of wildlife as there was 40 years ago. That number could actually get closer to like 60 to 70 percent by the end of this decade. I mean, like we're losing mass right now, less than... Five to ten percent of all kind of animals in the world are actually wild. Um, between domestic cattle, chickens, pets. I mean, you know, dogs and cats. And so that 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 percentage is shrinking more and more. And then what keeps me up is that 
we've done a very good job presenting kind of the, the challenges facing the big charismatic species. Now, we haven't solved all the problems, but when you think about like the big five in Africa, like the elephants and things like that, like what I think a lot of Americans we haven't done a good enough job. It's going to convince folks that we also have problems in folks' backyards. And so when bee populations are, you know, cut in half because of disease and habitat loss and things like that, when monarchs are down 90% compared to 15 years ago, we've been more than, more than a billion, we have 50 million now. Um, when you're seeing populations of, like, freshwater mussels and, like, um, amphibians, like, like frogs, or you're seeing um, impacts on, um, on migratory um, songbirds um, that are down, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70% in some cases, is there's a crisis right here at home. These are all things we can fix. Um, climate is a part of it. Part of it's reducing emissions and, you know, kind of dealing with temperature zones and some of the stressors. But a lot of it actually are other things we could just fix in people's backyards. I have not done a good enough job, and we have not done a good enough job elevating the crisis to the point where folks feel empowered to act. You know, and, and frankly, if everyone kind of just did their part in their backyard, um, we could save most of the small stuff um, just through just through better habitat, native plants, and the like. Um, at the end of the day, if we don't figure out a way in the next two or three years to kind of get ahead of this problem, um, the all the fears of the kind of the, this the sixth extinction, as they talk about, um, you know, could be easily be realized um, mm-hmm. across the globe. And so I'm optimistic because I do think when Americans are given kind of tools and information that they do kind of amazing things. I think we have to do it in a bipartisan way. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I think we'll rise to the occasion just as we have in previous generations. You know, how would you advise young leaders who have ambitions to advocate just like you have, you know, for causes they're passionate about? How would you advise them? I mean, I think for folks that kind of know what they're passionate about, and I think that's the most important kind of threshold question, uh, make sure you understand the subject material. I think we have a lot of folks that are good at pointing out problems in this country. We are we have very few folks that are able to like actually roll their sleeves and like put kind of viable solutions on the table. And I think part of it's a the way we do education in this country, um, particularly in things that kind of require multidisciplinary solutions. We have a lot of scientists that don't don't, can't really talk to economists. We have a lot of economists that can't really talk to policy folks. We've, we've created, we've made our, our education system so siloed in some ways that we don't have enough of that kind of liberal arts, the ability to kind of go across disciplines. And so what happens is that you have the scientists, you know, screaming on a wildlife issue or a climate issue, but using language that isn't really readily transferable into some kind of policy action or some kind of you know, public-private partnership or whatever. You have economists that use an entirely different language. I'm an economist by training. Um, they use an entirely different language than anybody else. And you almost need a decoder ring to understand a lot of it if you're not kind of from that discipline. And so my advice is, like, lean into the actual content and, and really kind of get into If you're using a conservation example. There are very few folks who can understand the science, the economics, and the policy, and actually being able to be a translator between those, it makes you incredibly valuable. Um, and it also moves you from a place of just being a person with a placard on the outside looking in to actually being in the room trying to actually affect the change. And I think right now, um, because, you know, there's a lot of things under attack, and I think a lot of folks are, are very r- r- frustrated, rightfully so, um, we can't afford to take the next four years off because, you know, folks might not like things the administration is doing. We need to find make progress because, the, you know, the, the health of the planet is in the balance. Having those folks that can, are nimble enough to operate across in, in different places and kind of go between the business community and the, and the government and it's in the civic sector and actually have the ability to kind of affect change wherever they can find it and that, that kind of ruthless pragmatism, I call it, um, are incredibly valuable. So my thing is, like, just roll up your sleeve and get, get, get things done. I mean, I think a lot of folks can shout, not enough folks can do. Colin O'Mara with the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Colin O'Mara is a Caddo Fellow. It's one of several Aspen Institute fellowships that comprise the Aspen Global Leadership Network. The Caddo program encourages fellows to develop new insights about themselves, the role of leadership, and the need for effective collaboration to ensure the well-being of the environment. Learn more by searching Caddo Fellowship Program on aspeninstitute.org. That's it for today's show. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks to our colleagues in the Aspen Global Leadership Network, the New Voices Fellowship, Ascend, and the Aspen Health Strategy Group. I'm Marcy Krivenin. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening. 